Thank you, worship team. And I want to remind you, if you haven't gotten your little cup and bread uh, on the back tables there, just make your way back there through the course of this message as inconspicuously as you can. Remind you to do that. You know, Good Friday, how many of you have been going to Good Friday for quite a while? I mean, year after year after year, quite, quite a few of you. It's an event that believers always remember. Um, even many in our world acknowledge its existence, although they may never have been to one. But, but don't you find it very sobering? There's that sobering nature to the whole event. And when you read the gospel accounts, it's pretty sobering. That's where we get that from. And John, uh, the atmosphere is set in John chapter 18, verse 1. Let me read it for you. When Jesus had spoken these words, so we're going to celebrate communion together tonight in remembrance of Jesus' death on the cross to pay for our sin debt. And this is what they've just left, that final supper, the last supper, the, the Passover meal. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, none of the other three Gospels tell us the name of this valley, just John. And if you've been studying through the Gospel of John with us for the last few months, you know that he, that he is known for never including any unnecessary details. We need more Johns in this world, by the way. And each detail he does include is packed with significance. And this detail that he gives about the Kidron Valley, it would have resonated with John's Jewish readers about 2,000 years ago. You see, in their minds, the Kidron Valley was associated with the betrayal of another king, the great King David. His own son had rebelled against him, and he had to evacuate Jerusalem in a hurry, and he did it across the Kidron Valley. So John deliberately and, and very subtly helps you and I make the connection. Just as the Kidron Valley was associated with betrayal of the great King David, it's also associated with the betrayal of David's even greater descendant, the great King Jesus. Now in verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and he said to this crowd, this rabble, whom do you seek? Again, none of the other three Gospels tell us that Jesus took this kind of an initiative at his arrest. But John points it out, and he points out that Jesus was not a victim of life's cruel circumstances, but Jesus was an intentional participant in God's plan of redemption for you and for me. He was not a slave of misfortune, but he was the master of world history. And they answered, verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we're looking for. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said that to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, none of the other three Gospels, are you, are you noticing a pattern here? None of the other three Gospels tell us that Jesus said, I am he. Just John. 
In Greek, it's just two words, I am. It was like a Jewish code for God. It was drawn from the time when, when, Moses inter- I mean, when God introduced himself to Moses uh, from, from that burning bush that would not be consumed even though it blazed like fire. And there were a lot of ideas as to why the crowd fell back when Jesus said, I am. And you probably have your own ideas, and you've thought about it, and you've come up with a, a solution. Well, John doesn't tell his why. As a matter of fact, we're never not told why anywhere in God's Word. But John just points out the irony of this whole situation. The one they came to arrest was the one they fell down before. It's amazing. He really is the King of Kings, isn't he? And he's the Son of God, God's own promised Savior. And and that was one of the biggest problems Jesus faced throughout his entire earthly ministry. It's one of the biggest problems that faces you and I today in this world in which we live. People misunderstand what Jesus came to do in the first place. And like many people in our world today, these Jews impose their own ideas on him instead of listening and letting him speak for himself. People then thought of God's salvation as as simply meaning that they'd be able to live free and safe in a land that they controlled. Now, who doesn't want that? Yeah, no hands. I see that. We all want this. And people today like to think in the same way of God's salvation as meaning, well, when you you come to Jesus, life just gets easier. Have any of you found that to be true? (laughs) All your problems are solved. So it's not surprising that when these authorities came to arrest Jesus, Peter draws his sword and attacks one of them. It's not surprising at all because that's how he's still thinking in the physical realm. He couldn't understand that Jesus' mission, he couldn't understand it in any other term other than physical deliverance. And it's in response to Peter that Jesus gives you and I one of the clearest definitions of what he came to do. Listen to this in verse 11 of John 18. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? Jewish readers understood this imagery, the drinking from God's cup. You and I We've kind of lost touch with that. But it's taken directly from the Old Testament where passage after passage refers it to God's holy anger. So Jesus clearly states here what he had come to do. He came to take upon himself the anger, the cup, the wrath of God for your sin and for my sin. A cup that I should be drinking, right? A cup that each of us should be drinking. And God washed away my sin debt. Has he washed away yours? God satisfied his completely just anger against our sin, and he did it with his own blood. And this is the very heart of the Christian gospel. This is the very essence of God's grace. This is why you and I are gathering here tonight on Good Friday that it is only through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that he, the, the completely innocent, 
took upon himself the full anger of God on the cross for my sin and for your sin. And then we, the guilty, completely guilty, can now be forgiven and saved for all of eternity. It's why we're here. John was there. John witnessed it all go down. And his account then takes us through the mock trial, Peter's denial, all the political maneuvering that went in on in the capital city between Jews and Romans, and then Pilate finally washing his hands of the whole mess. And John points out with deep irony what our world's behavior is like towards Jesus. It was then, it's still the same today. First, there's religious irony. The Passover, it was, a, it was a special Jewish celebration that remembered the Jewish deliverance from slavery in Egypt, right? It was a time when they would gather together and they would anticipate the day when God would send another special deliverer, someone like Moses, to once again deliver and, and liberate his people from slavery. And this liberator was closely linked to the delivering Passover lamb, which they would kill and they would eat every Passover, anticipating God's next deliverance. And the huge irony that John's pointing out here is that while participating in this lamb-killing and lamb-eating celebration called Passover, they were at the exact same time actually killing the very deliverer God had sent to them. It blows all categories. There's a leadership irony. John has already told us in his gospel the reason why the Jewish leadership wanted Jesus dead. They thought that he would gain such a following that there would be this rebellion and it would occur and the, the, the occupying Roman army would put it down and they'd take back all the control that these Jewish leaders had. They wanted to keep things good with the prevailing winds, with the government that was in place. And Pilate, he's probably aware, completely aware. He's a politician. He's completely aware of their reasoning. He knows what's going on. And so when Pilate offers him the choice between Jesus and another prisoner, his name? Barabbas. Who do they choose? Barabbas. They choose a prisoner who's a convicted rebel. Are you seeing the irony? Luke tells us that Barabbas had been arrest, arrested for an insurrection in the city, and for murder. <laughs> this scene drips with irony in verses uh, 39 and 40. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. <laughs> Their hatred for Jesus prompted them to request the freedom of someone who had actually already been convicted of what they feared Jesus would do. And then there's national irony. Pilate presents Jesus to them as their king, and they respond in verse 19, verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. You know they hate Caesar, right? Throughout the Old Testament, it's recognized that God Almighty was their king. 
And even David and all his descendants are, are just God's representatives on earth for Yahweh. But now, rather than submit to God's chosen one, they, they appeal to earthly rulers and powers to get their way. Boy, that sounds a lot like our world today. So when Pilate invites their sympathy, and he says in John, here is the man, and he's just beaten Jesus, had Jesus whipped, he's got a crown of thorns planted into his forehead, they're not satisfied with that. Pilate, Pilate thinks that they're going to see this sight and have such sympathy, they'll say, okay, he's got what he deserved, we're done. They are committed they're committed to Jesus' death upon a wooden cross, so they start up the chant again, crucify, crucify him. Everything has been building up to this climax, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself deliberately and consciously worked throughout his entire life toward his own death. It's what blew the disciples away. They couldn't understand why he's always talking about dying and so the crucifixion was not some sad, unfair postscript to a wonderful, innocent life. But it's the very culmination of all that Jesus came to do. The cross beam was placed upon Jesus' shoulders. And he began to carry it towards the place of execution. And you read in other Gospels, he was so bruised and beaten he couldn't, couldn't do it a place known as the place of the skull is where he was headed. And there an upright beam would have already been planted in place, so Jesus would have had his hands nailed through the wrists to that cross piece. And this was raised up with ropes and fastened to the upright beam. The nails would be hammered through his feet and probably allowed to rest on a small piece of wood that was on the cross attached to that upright beam, but not for comfort, but to prolong the agony of death so he could raise himself up and breathe. It's been described by Roman histor historians as the cruelest form of execution. It was intended to provide a severe warning to anybody who witnessed the event and afterwards, don't do this crime or else. This is what happens. And on average, it took a victim about three days to die. Some have been noted in history to last up to nine days. And while carrying that crossbeam out to the place of execution, it was common for the accused to wear around their neck the, the record of the crime that they were being executed for. And it was then fastened to the actual cross where they, where they hung. And Pilate here, we read in John, he taunts, he taunts the religious leaders. Of course, Roman, the religious leaders never got along. He taunts them with the following charge. It's in verse 19 of chapter 19, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And they don't like that at all. And it was written in three languages, uh, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And Pilate intended this to be a slap in the face to these troublesome quarreling Jewish re, uh, leaders, but John, he sees the real significance in these words. And throughout his gospel, John has been emphasizing how Jesus Christ came to rescue and to save men and women like you and me. 
And he came to save regardless of our racial, social, even our moral backgrounds. And John sees these words written in languages that anybody in the known world could have understood. They're symbolic of the open invitation of Jesus Christ to everyone. He is king, not just of the Jews, but of whoever acknowledges him as Lord and Savior. So John also identifies a number of women who were standing close by to witness the scene at the cross. And Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, is one of them. And I want you to, I'm going to read the passage, and I want you to notice the, the loving compassion that Jesus Christ displayed while being in utter agony. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which would have been John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. And then the king, the savior of the world, dies. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Few of us, if any, will fulfill our life's dreams. It's true. So much will be left unsaid, unfinished. There will be regrets and things that we wish we had accomplished but never got around to. But you could never use the words incomplete or unfinished about the life and work of Jesus Christ. He completed everything that the Old Testament Scriptures prophesied and promised about Him. Even as Jason read those passages earlier from Psalm 22 uh, about them, the Roman soldiers gambling for Jesus Christ's clothing, the Roman soldiers were doing exactly what God said would happen. And you can see how Jesus Himself had this same conscious awareness of being the fulfillment of God's plan for you and for me. Verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. So we are reminded today that what took place on Skull Hill was precisely what God had planned from the very beginning of time. Jesus knew it. He had known it all along. And one thing I love love about John, again, is that he doesn't waste words Every detail is significant. And John pointed out in the passage I just read that that sponge of wine vinegar was put on the stop of what kind of a stalk, of what kind of a plant? Yeah, you guys remember, yeah, hyssop plant. Matthew and Mark simply say it was a stick. Uh, Luke doesn't even mention it. But John, having stood at the cross as an eyewitness, sees the significance, and so he mentioned it. You see, the crucifixion took place during Passover, and the hyssop plant had a particular link to the Passover celebration. It was the plant that was used to brush the Jewish door frames with the blood of the Passover lamb, leaving the mark of blood that brought 
freedom and safety to God's people. You see, this is all about the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb. As John the Baptist said about Jesus when he introduced him to the world back in John chapter 1, verse 29, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that lamb of God cried out, it is finished. It's just one word in Greek, tetelestai. And our English language can't succinctly capture the essence of this expression. It, it, it's got the idea, the sense of something being complete, um, accomplished. In a legal sense, it's legally paid for. The word has already been used back in uh, John chapter 17 when God the Son, Jesus, prayed to God the Father. In verse 4, he said, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. It is completely paid for. Have you ever had something completely paid for by someone else? Have you? They covered it all, required nothing, just said, it's done, it's yours. How does that feel? And all God's people said, it feels good, right? It's paid for. How does it leave you feeling? Completely free. Completely free. And we're just talking about the stuff of this life. All that had to be done to rescue me from a death penalty that I owe has been accomplished. People, we need to quit trying to save ourselves. Can't be done. It's already been done. It's finished. It's over. And the words John uses in 1930 literally mean he handed over his spirit. No one took Jesus Christ's life from him. They couldn't. Jesus himself laid down his life for us. Back in John chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. They had no idea that it was going to look like this. In John 15, 13, he said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I mentioned earlier that this is the climactic event that Jesus' whole life and ministry was walking towards. But God the Father has a big surprise, doesn't he? Something that has been hidden up to this point for thousands of years, and it's going to be revealed in three days which you and I are going to return to celebrate this Sunday morning. But now we're going to take a moment, and we're going to reflect. We're going to meditate on the scene at the cross and what it really means. And we're going to remember Jesus Christ dying for the penalty of our sin, what we owe. We're going to take the bread and the cup.